Welcome to Podcast Production 101. This is how we do it. So yes, everyone, welcome to the live 2022 Fredonia Con episode of the Earth on Survival Guide, all email Quizicon with Josh Harrison and myself, Dan. On today's podcast, again, all emails all the time. We'll see what we can do to kill up this hour and make it a little bit exciting for you. So we've got a bunch to get to. We asked and you delivered. Welcome, everyone. Yeah, we got a, we got a ton. In fact, we're probably not going to get through all of them, so we will save the ones we don't get to for another episode. So if you sent a question in and we don't get to it, it was simply a matter of time. Do not take it as any kind of slight or offense. There's just a lot to get through. Nope. We needed to book an hour. So let's see what we can do on that. So first up, are you having issues? I am having issues. Are the talent. So this is actually from Lou. Okay. Yes. Talked a little bit. Are the talent pattern and attribute pattern talents originally appeared in the Earth on One Companion as talents that any adept could take at specific circles. In 4th edition, you haven't mentioned them in any of your high circle discipline discussions, so I was curious. If they're no longer in the game, can you elaborate on why? Yes, I actually have an idea behind this, but confirmed it talking to Morgan last night. They are not in 4th edition. The primary reason that they are not in 4th edition is because they were not in any of the talent progressions from third edition they were converted over to be knacks uh threadweaving knacks in third edition and so because they were not part of the talent progression they were not in the list of talents that got looked at when looking at um at high circle stuff to factor in the uh the range pattern attribute uh range pattern effect pattern and uh, casting pattern talents were part of the magician progressions, like even just in the optional talents or whatever. And so they were in the list that was compiled. The other two were not, basically because they had been shifted over to a different category of thing. It's the primary reason for it. Fair enough. So question two, if the goal of the talent option discipline system, which I'm not a fan of, but that's a topic for another another day, is to provide flexibility and allow for more differentiation among adepts of a given discipline. Why is there a limit to only one talent option slot per circle? Why not allow adepts to buy as many talent options as they like? Thank you for the questions, Lou. Because that is still an attempt to indicate that there are only so many talents that you get as an adept. The idea basically being... If you look at the first edition setup, a first circle character usually has six talents that they get at first circle. The alternate discipline mechanic, when it was initially developed under Red Brick, wanted to keep that same structure in terms of the number of talents that were available to a character. And so said, okay, you need these, and here is one that you can swap out or have a little bit of flexibility on. The other thing that making them unlimited would do is reduce the value of any choices that you might need to make in the course of progressing your character. Because ultimately, what you take at any given moment is what's most useful at that time. And if there's nothing preventing you from picking up everything, eventually, you run onto the 
the issue of the, the same kind of thing that happened with the multidiscipline rules, the original version, in terms of the cost effectiveness. It becomes a lot more effective to pick up another of your low circle talents and advance that really far rather than progressing in your discipline and limiting the options that are available that you only have so many choices. And if you want to have another choice, you need to advance in your in your discipline. You need to advance in your circle in order to gain that power. Those are factors that are involved in why that's the case. Fair enough. Okay, let's see if we can get another one in here. It will be just plain difficult to get that done. Apparently Discord and Word do not like to work together. Uh, usually you print them off ahead of time. I figured I'd go high tech this time and it's not working for me. But uh, we had a lot of emails. I didn't want to waste the toner cartridge, but I probably should have. So so we got a ton from Sven in the okay. Facebook group, the Earth Dawn Guild. Yeah. And first question is, I guess you're bored with this one, but... <laughs> I don't know how many... I know the question. I don't know how many times we have answered it thus far this weekend, but we'll answer it again so that it's on it's the recording. Answer it again. Yeah. Do we know when the magic book is coming out? When it's done, I yeah, do know, answers, yeah, I do know that it is, it is taking longer than planned because of other work that Morgan has needed to do on other books, but he is making progress on it. He, uh, from a recent meeting and from stuff he was talking about here at Fredonicon this weekend, uh, had a productive meeting with one of his, uh, sort of co-developers working on stuff for that book and, all of the spells for one of the disciplines are pretty much done. And there's a lot of progress that's been made on the others, but the book is going to end up having like over 200 spells when all is said and done. And spells are probably among the hardest things to develop for because you want to have some kind of at least roughly consistent power curve on them. And figuring out what spells are going to do and make sure that you don't have too much duplication or overlap or all sorts of stuff that that goes on there. So it is in progress. It, you know, it will be done when it's done. We hope it's sooner rather than later, but uh, it is definitely moving forward on that. Very cool. Okay. In the meantime, I have printed these out so I can get this thing done. <laughs> Welcome to Podcast Production 101, Backups. I would love to see a remake of the spell design chapter in the old first edition magic book. I guess there's a little hope for that, uh, or very little hope for that. Maybe write a small note on how to update older published spells to fourth edition for gamers who want to use the older books. Um, that might be... I have no idea. There are not going to be any kind of spell design rules like you saw in the first edition book. Uh, the first edition book spell design rules were... Eh? I think is my reaction to them um, because it was very difficult to actually replicate spells that existed using those rules and stuff like that. It's, it's just, it, it's yeah, it, it, it is something that is openly difficult and, and results in the potential of, abuses that we're not fans of making possible simply because, oh, this is printed in a book, therefore it's okay. So more trouble than it's worth. Yeah. And, and as far as updating older spells to fourth edition, 
my thought, I mean, my instructions on that are take a look at roughly equivalent stuff and see what makes the most sense based on similar circle spells. Yeah, totally. But then I'm not, I I am not a, (laughs) I am not a super systems designer type person. And what is required or necessary for a book that is going to see publication is very different than what you need to do for a spell or whatever, some kind of custom content, homebrew content that you're doing at your own table because of the ramifications that it has on everybody's play and potentially the setting as well. So if I were looking to adapt an earlier spell that was not yet up to fourth edition for my own table for a game that I was running, I would be a lot looser and more willing to fudge or bend things to make it work than I would if it were something that was going to be actually in a published source book. Fair. That you have to write for the generic setting and people versus just which a is part of the reason table. which is ultimately part of the reason why Morgan does a lot of the mechanics and I don't. Fair. Absolutely fair. Question two from Sven. Uh, do you know how thick this book is going to be? Uh, he thinks the no. Grand Grimoire deserves to be as thick as the Mystic Paths or the GM's Guide, but I think with 200 spells, yeah, you're going to get two, two or three I spells imagine this is going to be a hefty book that is on the upper range of the page counts that we typically see, but since the book's yeah. not done yet and hasn't gone through preliminary layout... It is impossible to say what the actual page count is going to be. Fair. Mystic Paths size is probably not, would not surprise me, even seeing a little bit more than that, but we're nowhere near even having an idea at this point. No, fair. Still preliminary stages. Question three. The old Canex Arcanum had some old cool spells I would love to have seen updated to fourth edition, the version of. Uh, will you look over third-party stuff like this, too? No. Or when you select what spells you want to include in the book? Probably not. Well, I, I say no, but no. Third-party stuff is hit and miss at the best of times, and you run into issues where we would take looking at a third-party like fan-created thing and putting that into our books opens up all kinds of potential liability kind of stuff intellectual property it's it's, it's the same it's the same reason that like professional writers and screenwriters and stuff don't read like fan works of their stuff because they don't want to they just have to because they don't want to open themselves up to the possibility of oh you ripped me off kind of thing i i don't even necessarily know the book that he's referring to i've never heard of it but any kind of it could be that there is interesting stuff in there, but I don't know about it, and we don't have, I imagine, any interest in looking at that for new material. No, fair enough. Could you have some sort of contest where people could submit suggestions for new spells? Maybe include them in a PDF companion with the Kickstarter? Uh, of course, uh, after looking so, over the making balanced for fourth edition. I mean, necessarily preliminary steps to go through all that stuff. I am going to answer this in in a couple of ways. Could we? Yes. Are we? No. All right. (laughs) Especially as something that is part of, because of the way that we do our production, where the book is basically done before we Kickstarter it, there is not space for us to say, okay, now we, in addition to the stuff we've already written for this book, we are going to have space for 
fan contributed material because yeah. that requires development work after the fact. And it also means that we need to make sure that there is space in the book for those and not knowing what that content is going to be makes it very difficult to plan page counts and all that sort of thing. So yeah, could we? Yes, absolutely. Other companies have done that sort of thing in the past. Are we going to? No, it doesn't work with our production cycle or the way that we want to do things. And logistics. Fair. Uh, will the journal survival guide... Yeah. Sorry. Nope. Hit it. That's Nope. Okay. I'm going to... Morgan will be very Morgan. angry with me if I wander too far afield from that answer. Fair enough. A uh, couple... Last two for, for Sven. Will the German survival guide part two cares ever be translated to English? I know the translators in forums have offered to translate it for you. Many fans are aware of this book. Maybe expand it some? The translation isn't the issue. It's a matter of finding someone who is interested enough in the project to take it from the condition that it is that the condition that it is in that we have it at, which is loosely translated, mm-hmm. but to actually take that product and shepherd it and develop it into a full thing on its own. So we have the right to do it, like we could do it. But right now, nobody has any strong interest in that. And, and there's no book that's currently like in a stage of development process where that material would potentially fit in. It might eventually possibly see English publication someday, but I don't know when or what shape that might end up taking. So no time soon. Right. Uh, last one from Sven. Where is the Great Bazaar book in the pipeline? This year? Maybe Gen Con? Uh, from what we were talking about earlier this weekend, Grand Bazaar, knock on wood, if everything moves along as we are hoping, should see uh, Kickstarter launching for that within the next couple of months. Nice. Looking forward to that. Uh, okay, on to a list from Joel. One of the Joels, I think, in the Council of Joels on the Facebook group as well. Uh, number one, I think this is going to be like lightning round. Uh, what is your favorite piece of lore from the existing published work? What would you love to see at your table? Oh, uh, that's not a lightning round question because I actually have to think <laughs> about it. Dang it, Joel. Um, Fair. I think mine is still like the legends, the old legends that I, I recorded as uh, filler episodes. Baby, baby, anointed in sand is one of my. Oh God, that's a great one. Shorts of all time. Yeah, I I really like that one. So I'll lead off. I'll I'll get your mind turning. Sure, that's that's really cool. Um, yeah, I don't like nothing immediately comes to mind for me in that regard. Sorry. Fair. All right. No, no worries. Uh, kind of cut you off guard. Uh, question two: Where would you want to start a bar save campaign if you were running or playing? If I were actually looking to run a real campaign where I was not winging it from pre-written stuff like I'm doing right now, I'm running a Legends game for a group of folks online. uh, At this point, I would probably start it in or around Europa because that city is taking up a lot of my brain space at the moment. Absolutely fair. Uh, Where would you want to start a non-Barsavian campaign? Um, Shosara, I think. Shosara seems really, really interesting to me in some regards. The other answer to that is to go like completely someplace ridiculously far afield with like an original thing that is not connected to any sort of existing Barsavian lore or canon. Yeah, no, my friend created a campaign somewhere between Barsave and Cathay, like halfway in between. So it's not on any of the maps, 
but it's still visible as part of planet Earth, so we're good there. Uh, what areas inside of Barse that have not been covered in published material are you most intrigued to see covered? Um, that list is getting shorter. Uh, Europa, obviously. I'd be interested in seeing a little bit more uh, exploration of Landis. Ustrecht would be really interesting. There's even less information about Ustrecht than there is about Landis. Yeah. Those are those are the the big ones. I'm interested in revisiting Vivane because of what's happened to it. I've got some really cool ideas as to what's going on there. But those are sort of the ones that that interest me. Somebody in the chat, Far Scholar, just said Merrick. Merrick is a is an awkward situation because it only appears in a novel, basically. Um, and doesn't appear in any other kind of source book situation, appears on a couple of maps that were created that have sites from the novels. I would really need to dive more deeply into what's going on with that to see if it would be worth continuing to canonize in some way. No, that's fair. Uh, have you thought about whether other great dragons are giving Barsave the cold shoulder? No. Um... The dragons situation, I imagine that dragons in other parts of the world, I don't know that it's giving Barsafe the cold shoulder, but that they've got their own concerns in their own areas. And we only think that Barsafe is as important as it is because it so much attention has been paid to it. Like the dragons in Cathay aren't giving Barsafe the cold shoulder. They've got their own concerns. Dragons in the present day African continent or in, in the Americas yeah, or in Southeast Asia, they've got their own stuff going on. And I don't imagine that it's a sort of like cold shoulder. We don't care kind of situation. Yeah. They got that's their own the, that's the way do. I think that's the way I think of it anyway. No, fair. Uh, question nine, what happened to question Nebus? And on to question 10. Continue. Uh, when, the books of, <laughs> when the books of Harrow were transcribed, did the original false premise make it, or is it a new false premise that Thera was based on? I don't completely understand that question. I'm with you entirely. Question 11. Lightning round. Uh, will Fekara receive additional development possible touching in the Nebus Heaven Herds? There's nothing planned currently for Fekara at all. Okay. Question 12. Has Panda had any free time? <laughs> There's the fun part right there. Uh, no. To work on a new non-caster, Nebus Nebus, while polishing the magic book everyone else is interested in? No. I think we're getting lost in, uh, he's being possessed by a horror at this point. I'm not sure what he means by working on a non-caster. There's a path that he worked up that's in the Vasgothia book. Nice. So, like, there is some yeah. of that stuff, but no... New stuff like that is likely to be paths as opposed to disciplines because yeah. Morgan uh, Morgan talked about the, the development reasons and thinking behind that at least once. He may have talked about it a couple of times this past weekend. It's a it's a support issue. Fair. Uh, I think his last two questions kind of devolved into being possessed by a horror. So it's just uh, nebus, nebus, nebus all over the place. Okay. So we'll avoid that one. Chad. Uh, does want to say hi. Josh and Dan, glad to hear Dan's stickers may arrive safely and hope Josh got his too. Uh, right they here did. On my dice bag. It's in ca yes. on camera. Ta-da! I anyway, don't yes. have mine right immediately to hand, but I did receive them. Thank you. 
Yes, thank you, Chad. A quick shaman spell question this week. You might even be able to answer it with a single word. Despite playing a windling shaman for several years, it was only my, in my last session that I considered how some of their durations should play out in-game. Invoke Crow Tear, for example, summons my crow bro to peck at the eyes for a target for two rounds. On a successful cast, we've been dealing damage in the first round and applying partial blindness for both rounds. I couldn't find anything in Mystic Paths to suggest damage should only be applied for one, so I thought it might write to you for your sage advice. The crow is still attacking in the second round, is it still doing damage? I generally say no, because there are other spells that also have a duration of that measurement, kind of like the low circle, like circle one wizard damage spell with a secondary effect. They do the damage just once, and then the secondary effect lasts a little bit longer. Uh, we've talked about on the show other times that durations and stuff are weird to deal with because of the way that the initiative system works. Yeah, not wrong. Uh, yeah, uh, Invoke Crow tear, tear, I'm pretty sure, is a relatively low circle spell. I don't think it's first. It might be a little bit higher than that. I think, I think yeah, I remember second or something. I forget. I don't I don't have my book right here to check. Um, and I don't want to pull up my PDF to check. But nope. generally speaking, uh, I, I think unless the spell rules slash descriptions specifically say otherwise, then it just does the damage once and it's only secondary effects that would last longer. British Joel, one of the members of the Council of Joels, just pointed out in chat that there is a wizard spell that does do damage both rounds, but it is specifically noted that it does so uh, in the spell description. That's uh, Flame Flash, I believe, is the name of it. So kind of like the American U-turn, if it doesn't say you can't do it, you can. Teasing. Yeah. Going with On to, uh, thank you, Chad, by the way. Stickers look great. Did a fantastic job on those. Uh, on to K. Scott Rowe's email. Hi, Dan and Josh. I am very happy with how 4th edition has added to and improved the rules and abilities of spirits. Thank you for that. Thank you. As Scott is actually Scott is actually in the chat. Um, hey. So thank you. you directly saying Shout that out to Scott. him. Uh, in that vein, is there any thought about adding to the various planes of existence? I have always liked the idea of in-between planes. For example, between the planes of fire and water, you find the plane of steam. And between the planes of earth and air, you find dust. Or any thought to addressing other nether worlds like Silver, Cadence, or Throne from First Edition's Magic Book? This is a semi-complex question. Yes, there are thoughts. In fact, during our hangout last night, Morgan and I were talking about that as something that is on our list of things that we have wanted to do for a while, like an Astral Gazetteer, which will do even more to expand spirits and provide more examples and weird spirit stuff and nether realms and things like that. It is not a currently planned book. It is not something that is on the, the schedule at all, but it is something that we are both aware of and would both be really, really interested in doing because you can do really, really weird stuff without fracturing the, the setting of Earth Dawn too much with that. I do not like the idea of demiplanes like steam between fire and water or stuff like that. That is a very D&D-ism that is the result of a particular cosmology that that game has that I don't think has a place in Earth Dawn. Not that there's anything wrong with it. It's just not something that it's works not for thing. me in terms of a in terms of an Earth Dawn concept. But yes, if at some point this uh, hypothetical Astral Gazetteer book appears, 
other nether realms and stuff will um, hopefully be a part of that. Fair. Uh, and the first of our emails from one of our Lees, this is from Lee B. Uh, Hello, Dan and Josh. Not looking for weed delving here. More like root digging. Some oh, random geez. questions regarding the current timeline and political situation in Barsave. The first question is regarding House Sirtis. The question of what happens after the Shivalahala's childhood is a serious concern for many from an in-game point of view, and the fallout from a change to male and adulthood is significant with regard to both the lore and history of the setting. Question, what is the current status of the Shivalahara in House Sirtis? I know, how much time do we got? So here's the thing. <laughs> what is the status? It has not been revealed in any fourth edition product. All I will say, and I think all I'm allowed to say at this point is that Morgan and I have talked about it, and I don't want to say any more than that. Okay. Next. Uh, the other questions are more centered on the power vacuum. Oh, hold on. Wait, hold on. I do want to back up one step and say <laughs> that there are issues potentially in play when it comes to making a decision about the fate of the prophetess that are part of the reason why it's taken so long but we have come up with a solution that we think will work and it will be revealed in time. Okay. Uh, yes, the power vacuum created from the events of Vivane. Now the Theron presence at Vivane is largely removed, or is it? What's happening in the far southwest of the province? Uh, so you're, if you're stopping there, stuff is happening while Vivane is no longer a stronghold of Theron might with the destruction of Sky Point as well. There are still Theron forces not too much farther to the southwest in uh, Rugaria, but the Therans kind of have problems still going on in, in other parts of their empire. So that's the situation. It's kind of loose anarchy at the moment. Fair enough. Uh, does House Catension have the power base to remain relevant without the support of Thera? That's a fascinating question, and perhaps someday we will explore it. Iopos could also be a threat for that area with its current expansionist update in the lore. Yeah, um, with what's going on, Iopos has interest in everything. I don't know that they would be particularly interested in actually exerting some kind of force in the area the way that they did in, say, Jerus. But of course, if you read Empty Thrones, you know that there are Iopen agents and stuff working down there because one of the things that Iopos likes to do in general is get their fingers wedged into established powers and leverage that and, and uh, like learn their enemies slash rivals weaknesses and leverage those. Yeah, the, the Denerastus would be very interested in causing problems for Carafod because Carafod is right now sort of the strongest power in that area. The Crystal Raiders aren't organized enough as a unified force to be too much of a trouble, um, but Carafod could potentially cause problems and the Denerastus would be interested in having information on how they could exploit the societal stress points that exist there to their own benefit. Fair enough. So speaking of Carafod, uh, Carafod and Landis are both adjacent to the general area. Whilst Carafod has received some attention, both it and Landis are little more than footnotes in the setting. 
Rugaria appears to be a rich and low-hanging fruit if the Therans are truly gone. Yeah, and if you're talking about expansion, we don't have any plans right now of expanding or exploring Rugaria. There was some thought originally where somebody came and was proposing an outline for a Rugaria book, but nothing ever came of that, and it is not under contract or seeing any active development. Carafod saw development in first edition because of its significance in what was going on with Prelude to War and the subsequent war effort. Landis has has not had a narrative role within the setting that justified it having a book dedicated to it yet. Like I said earlier, that is an area that would be interesting to explore, but it's a matter of finding out what role it would serve in the plans that we have for the ongoing story of Barsave. Fair. <clears throat> Final random question about the potential future publications. Are there plans to extend the Legends of Barsave away from Parlanth? Season two, but maybe set in places like Trevar, Ustrek, Landis, yada, yada, yada. Um, I don't know the answer to that. We are going to conclude the Legends of Barsave arcs with the 16 chapters that were originally planned. They have been successful enough that it's where at least I think that things are being talked about in terms of where to go with that, where that might be or what kind of story arc might be involved or what, I don't know, but they would almost certainly be based in Barsave because that is the core setting that we're working on and would probably not do anything uh, in outside areas. Fair enough. So on to ultimately, if you want to see outside areas be more developed and more content created for them, you need to get a lot of people to buy them to justify the effort and investment that it would be for us to produce those books in order for people to get them. On to the different Lee, Lee A, in his uh, email, uh, Josh and Dan. Note, I was going to break this into several emails, but you said you needed content for Fredonia. Feel free to parse this one out as needed. I think this actually might fill up the, most of the rest of the episode, but if you have questions for us, get them in the chats and, and we'll interrupt as we need to. I have a few questions, but I would like to start with a quick expression of my gratitude. My brother and I started playing Earthon in first edition, and we own almost all of those books. However, life, college, geography happens, and we hadn't gotten to play in it in quite some time. We've just recently picked, up, picked it back up again thanks to the wonders of online play and decided to give fourth edition a try. It's been great, and I wanted to thank both of you for keeping Earth Dawn alive. Thank Josh. I'm just hosting the podcast. It's all him and Morgan and, and all the line developers and the freelancers' uh, input, so... They get all the credit. You are one of those freelancers, so you get you get at least a, a, a little bit. I get 1%. 1%, which is fine. I'll take my 1%. Uh, also, if your goal with this podcast was to sell books, it worked! Now to my questions, which I have numbered because well, I like lists. That was not the primary goal. That secondary. is a secondary goal. But we'll take it. Absolutely. Uh, he likes lists. So one, our party includes a rogue. I think he means thief. So I'm going to su- substitute... Thief for Rogue, everywhere else in this list. Whatever. So, so I was hoping you could clarify the mechanics of using Surprise Strike. Surprise Strike can be used against targets that are surprised, blindsided, or knocked down. From my understanding, a thief can use this with Conceal Object from sneaking in the first round of combat, or if an appropriate discipline is using Distract. Is there any other strategy for using Surprise Strike consistently in combat? Um... Yes, because it can be used against people who are knocked down, and that is to have your allies use the attack to knock down option to knock people on the ground. 
harrying opponents can work as well, as somebody just mentioned in the chat. If you get enough people attacking a single target, at least some of those attacks will be blindside and be able to take advantage of surprise strike. Distract was mentioned. Obviously, that's a, a pretty obvious one, but also mm-hmm. uh, Waterfall Slam and Shield Bash actually yeah. are really good at improving the knockdown situation of people. If you're doing theater of the mind, it can be a little bit difficult to really take advantage of it. But if you are using a more tactical minis setup, virtual tabletop or whatever, and you actually Mm -hmm. are using facing, you could probably justify within your table of having like a primary target and a blind side if they are literally on opposite sides of each other. But that's a sort of fiddly thing that wouldn't work for my games because I tend not to be that minis Specific. on the table tactical. Fair. Uh, so uh, he but yeah, the, the, the big thing, the big thing is, is attack to knockdown. Yeah. What if the thief is hidden for the first round of combat that attacks on a later round, assuming the opponent they target fails a perception test, would the thief gain the benefit of blindside surprise and or surprise strike? Yes. I think so. If the thief is hidden and holds off, they can't be acted against. I think the example in the player's guide, one of the examples about surprise and opponents entering the fight after the initial round doesn't directly address that question, but basically it's if somebody shows up later that was not a part of the fight and you fail the perception test to notice them, then you can't act against them. That would be a situation where surprise comes into play and potentially blindside, both of which open up the opportunity to use surprise strike. Fair. Uh, More regarding distracting strike, which is not a talent and not a knack. So I think he's talking about having someone distract while he strikes. If I understand correctly, this can allow a thief to use surprise strike almost every round if the other players Um, keep them distracted. Uh, This seems as if it could create inconsistencies in damage for the thief depending upon their party members. Am I overthinking this? Yes. So (laughs) if you're looking strictly at damage, the damage output of potential of a thief using surprise strike does depend very heavily on circumstances and what their group is made of. If you don't have a warrior or swordmaster or somebody in the group that has the distract talent, which is probably one of the more reliable ways to open up surprise strike, or is consistently using tactics that are knocking down the opponent uh, to open up that opportunity for the thief, it is possible that you may only end up with the ability to use surprise strike once or twice in a combat, as opposed to it being something that you look at in terms of a reliable source of damage within the the game. It is very circumstantial and definitely something that if you are playing a thief and you are looking at playing a sort of striker type surprise strike ambush dealing lots of damage thief, that's something you're going to need to look at the group's composition and have a discussion with the other players at the table and figure out, you know, this is something that I want to do. Is it something that is actually feasible because it always sucks to like sort of build your character into a particular dynamic and not have that supported by the others. 
Absolutely fair. Uh, okay, on to question number two, because that was all question number one. Uh, a similar question with downstrike. Can we great leap every round to jump up and down and smash our enemies? Or how else can this be triggered? Yes. If you're willing to spend the strain to do it and your rolls are, are sufficient to get you that distance, then yeah, pretty much you, you can. You just look like a pogo stick, but, uh, you know, theater of the mind and all. If, if that's how you want to be portrayed, go for it. I had a character who had Great Leap all the time, and he would go Jackie Chan off the walls, uh, if there were any, or, yeah, jump up really high and come down smashing like the Hulk. So it works. I can't help but notice that in Morgan's revision of the Sky Raider, he has essentially eliminated Downstrike and replaced it with Crushing Blow. I am a fan of this change. Just... Wanted Morgan to hear that. No question asked. Question number three. Overall, I love the changes to how karma works in fourth edition. However, the change to a universal karma die of a D6 threw me a bit. It looks like this was in third edition as well. I know that karma modifier for each race is based upon their stats. The stat bonus that a troll gets is significantly more than an orc, and I'm concerned that a few extra karma won't be enough to balance out this stat difference. So... Is the extra karma going to be better than I think it is once we advance a few circles? And how much would I break the game if my if we house ruled the karma die from first edition? My first guess is a lot, uh. so I doubt we'll do it, but I still enjoy the speculation. Take your time, Josh. Go over that question again for me. Okay. It's fine. I need to parse that out. I know that the karma modifier for each race is based upon their stats. The stat yes. bonus that a troll gets is significantly more than an orc, and I'm concerned that a few extra karma won't be enough to balance out the stat difference. So is the extra karma going to be better than I think it is once we advance a few circles? I think so, yes. I know so. I've been playing for the last couple of weeks. I also don't I also don't consider orc is probably like windling is probably the better choice to have as the example there, because yeah. windlings have the net minus three when you factor in all their racial adjustments, whereas um, uh, trolls and obsidian have a net plus six, I think is roughly what it works out to be. Yeah. But yes, at first circle, it doesn't seem like much. Uh, but once you start getting some additional circles and the size of your karma pool, like the difference between a windling's karma pool at, say, fifth circle and a troll's karma pool at fifth circle. As someone who has been playing a troll, <laughs> karma is still something that I need to think about. Now, admittedly, as a spellcaster, Virag does not go through karma as much as, say, a troll swordmaster or warrior might, but yeah. it is still a consideration when it comes to things. And so having a larger karma pool absolutely become something that is more noticeable as you get uh, some circles and have larger pools to play with. Yeah. My, I'm playing a sixth circle to Scrang scout. And at the moment I've got like 24 karma points. It's awesome. I love it. Uh, but my human warriors only up to like uh, fifth circle and he's got like, it, I think 15 or 20 or something like he that. He would have 25 if he's fifth. 25. Circle. Yeah. So he's so just, should have a karma mod of five. Yeah, so he's just at the same level I am, and he's not quite used to using all of it yet. So it's it depends upon how you want to play your character and, and if your dice are not helping you that day. <laughs> yeah, it's a combination of like what discipline your character is and the style of game, how mm -hmm. much karma you actually end up using. And again, that's that's sort of a something that can vary significantly from table to table and style of play to style of play and discipline to discipline. 
Yeah. You know, a, a combat heavy game, a warrior or swordmaster is just in general likely to be burning through their karma more quickly than a troubadour is likely to in that game because the troubadour does not have as many combat talents that they would be spending the karma on. Yeah. So part two of his question, how much would he break the game if he house ruled the karma die from first edition racial karma die? I don't know. Part of the reason that the change was made in third edition is that some of the things, and this isn't just the karma mod, but there are some things like, for example, the original version of the taunt talent. We talked about that when it first popped up many, many, many episodes ago, where multiple things are based off of something. Like, so with karma in first edition, you had not only the size of the pool and the like the size of the pool and the die type were sort of both based off of the rate the race the name giver race along with the cost and starting amount and whatnot starting amount wasn't that big a deal cost wasn't a huge deal but still windlings got the best die they had the largest pool and it was the cheapest for them to get that those kinds of things while not necessarily directly exponential kind of stack on top of each other and one of the things that was done with the design of and the rework of, of classic into third edition was to try and not have multiple things based off of the same thing. Most obviously in the case of rank for a talent, but in other things as well. And so shifting to a common die type for everybody, but have the amount of karma that was available be based off of your race as a multiplier, which in third edition was based off of your rank in the karma ritual talent, which is sort of now a hidden aspect rather than it being a talent you actually raise. It's just assumed to be equivalent to your circle to kind of simplify things in that regard. But that's that's the general idea. I don't think ultimately that it would break things too badly, but it's still something that could potentially, uh, it would be something that I would be willing to if I were doing it at a home table, maybe give it a try and see if it caused problems and understand that you could roll it back later. Yeah. Try it one session only, or just do a test test run. Again, that's one of those things that I, I really like the way it works in fourth edition. I think from a, a sort of learning to play and gameplay standard, it's okay. It's just, uh, I understand the, affection that windling players have with have with their d10 karma dies from from those who who played it long ago yeah i just want to know if it'll break the game even more when <clears throat> at ninth circle you go up from d6 to a d8 that everybody would do the same thing so you'd move your d4 to a d6 your d6 yeah to d8, d8, i mean that was something that that karma increase i'm pretty sure was something that was in first edition as well oh it was i just i recall it being there i don't think you know i i don't think Ultimately, talking about it strictly from a statistical mathematical point of view, I don't think it's a huge deal. It is a lot more significant at lower circles simply because of the average point difference that comes into play. Ultimately, a troll spending a point of karma is going to, if you're talking about the old style dice, a troll yeah. spending a point of karma is going to average about adding three points to the results of the roll on average. People talk about, oh, well, the D4 explodes more frequently. Yeah, it explodes one time in four rather than one time in 10 versus the D10. But still, averages and statistics, you can't, ultimately, the average result is going to be higher with the D10 than it is with the D4, 
even when you factor in the rerolls and stuff. So a yeah. troll is only going to be adding about three on average. A windling is going to be averaging about six. So what you're talking about is that when you factor in a windling or a human or an orc who all have the, the D8, the windlings, the humans and the orcs who have a D8 and the windlings who have a D10, um, you're adding six for the windling, five for the other two. You are looking at, on average, guaranteeing an extra success on tests where karma comes into play. That is not quite the case. And that is a much more noticeable difference when you are at like first and second circle, as opposed to when you are up into like seventh or eighth circle. In the same way that attributes are a lot more important at lower circles than they tend to be at higher circles, because at that point, your ranks and your bonuses from threat items and buffs from spells and all sorts of stuff really start to overtake that. So at lower circles, it's a lot more likely to be a potential issue than it is at higher circles. Fair. Uh, last one from Lee. Different Lee. Lee A. Uh, I always write my own adventures and I've never run a pre-made. I'm thinking of trying Legends of Bar Save. Is there anything I should know before jumping into it? Or can I just get the first few books and go? I would recommend that if you are going to do that, get the uh, Legends of Bar Save Haven Volume 1, which includes all of the first eight chapters, as well as the sort of prologue that was included in the quick start, Masks of Fear, which introduces you to some of the characters that show up a little bit later on. It is intentionally written and designed to be introductory and does not require any extensive knowledge or background in that. So you absolutely could pick that up and that compilation more or less includes everything that you would need to run it. The The old Parlanth box set is Okay, it's like helpful potentially as a secondary source, but there's nothing in there that's required that doesn't also show up in the Legends adventures where necessary. Yeah, it's got some good maps and things like that, but not required. Uh, thank you, and I apologize for the length of my email. It got even more out of hand than I was expecting. I've read it about 10 times now, so hopefully all of my questions were clear. I would also like to share that I have been following Morgan's blog and Panda Gaming Grove, and it has been enjoyable. So, thank you, Lee. Second? Yes. Second, second Lee? Second Becky? Whatever? Thank you. And I will reiterate that if you are not following Panda Gaming Grove, if you're not following Morgan's blog... There's a lot of great stuff there that are resources for game masters and players and provide insights into the design ethos and stuff like that. Fair. So is there anything in the chat we can find? There's been a discussion in the chat about something that I haven't been following with regards to groups. Uh, Morgan brought up that the cooperation kind of stuff, like with Distract and Surprise Strike and various other synergies that exist between talents available to different disciplines and so forth was very much an intentional design choice to encourage groups to work together uh, in order to be more effective or most effective at their things rather than having people off on their own. And I would say that that's both at a character level as well as a player level. I think that really the, the collaborative nature of gaming and a gaming group that you have is one of the stronger aspects of it. And being a lone wolf, I'm going to go off on my own and not be concerned with other people is a popular archetype. Um, but I not crazy about it personally. 
yeah, it's just hard, kind of harder to work in. Uh, any further questions? We got like five minutes. We did get one email from Alexander, and I apologize, Alexander. It was so long. I knew we Oof. weren't going to have time for it today. So yeah. we'll get back to you on your own. <laughs> it also requires its own. It requires a lot more like thought and attention than I wanted to put into here. It it may end up being like its own entire episode on its own. So we did get that. And it's interesting. Um, it's a, it it's a it's, very interesting it's email. Building. But yeah, it's it's we we did not have time to do that and all of the others. So we'll get to it. No. Yeah, it's it's world building and provincial management. So it's it's a. Uh for those really, really dedicated to Earth Dawn and all of its minutiae. But uh, yeah, any questions in the chat that we can find? Anybody got a last minute thing? We got three and a half, four minutes to go. I've got a question. Why is my cat clawing at my leg? Because cats do that. They are murder machines. You just hit the murder button and they just go off on you. But that's my explanation. Love. Because because he loves me. Yeah, well, that, that may be. I only actively feed them in the morning. I put down food for them in the morning and then they have like a bowl of dry food that they can snack on during the day that my daughter is responsible for keeping topped off. Yeah, there you go. Murderous intent. (laughs) Cats have a murder button. They all do. All right. Well, I guess that wraps it up for another episode. Absolutely. I appreciate everyone sending us the emails that filled up all of our time and space and uh, picked Josh's sewer trap of a brain. That was very helpful instead of having to fill content. But we can actually hit our mark this time and get out of here on time and free up the room for whoever's next. Well, this is it. This is the final event. We've got the closing ceremonies after this. So this this wraps up Fredonia Con. We are the anchor. Yes. We are the anchor. Nice. Uh, well, thank you, one and all, for attending. If you don't have any questions for us at the moment, we will f- sign this one up. And I'm sorry for all the technical problems at the beginning. My fault. It's just the electronics didn't want to work with the push-to-talk function and a Word document open at the same time. So I'll uh, learn that for next year. Yeah, and kind of go from there. So until next time, uh, when we get more out in the uh, podcast feed for you, please feel free to attend FredoniaCon every year to boost your legend. Have a good night, everybody. Oh, wait, we stopped stop recording? <laughs> <laughs>